Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 46, can be found on pages 570 to 71 of the Church Bibles. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where dwells the Most High. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and can be found on pages 1,234 of the Church Bibles. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. God, our Father, through your Holy Spirit today, help us to hear your word and then go out and do your will. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were with us last week, either in person or online, uh, for the beginning of this sermon series, you might remember that I started out the sermon last week by talking about employee performance reviews. Anyone remember that? Anyone? Okay, yeah, good. Okay, so in any case, We talked about employee performance reviews, and I said at that time that employee performance reviews, at least the classic ones, shall we say, the old-fashioned ones, they consist of four basic elements, four basic elements. Okay, first there's commendation, commendation. Here the employer tells the employee what they did well. And then there's complaint. Here is when the employer tells the employee what they didn't 
do so well, right? A little bit negative uh, feedback they're getting here, or sometimes a lot bit negative feedback. A third, there's the correction, the correction. Here the employer tells the employee um, how to fix whatever they're doing wrong, how they can correct what they're doing wrong. And then fourth and finally, there's the consequence part of the review. And here is where the employer tells the employee what's going to happen to them if they do or do not respond appropriately to what's communicated to them in the review. Okay, so again, just to review, we have commendation, we have complaint, we have correction, and then we have consequence. I think we've got that down, hopefully. Now I want you to think about this. What if you had an employee who is so good you really had nothing bad to address with them in the review. What if you had an employee so positive, so productive, so on task, so outperforming, that it was hard to think of anything negative to mention to them in their review? What if you had an employee whose performance was so excellent, you had nothing to complain about? What would you say to them then at the review? Well, of course, any half-decent employer would find something negative to say to the employee during the review process, right? This, after all, as I mentioned last week, an employer can't, in an annual review, leave an employee feeling so self-assured and so confident they'll ask for a big raise or a significant promotion. That's no way to run a business, as we all know, right? But that aside, that aside, I wonder, what would you say? How would you conduct a performance review in which there was nothing to correct? Well, I asked the question this morning because it's a lot like the situation Jesus faces and finds himself in in our passage today from Revelation chapter 2. As we discussed last time, Jesus, as recorded by the Apostle John, He's not reviewing the performance of employees, of course. He's reviewing the performance of churches. Churches. Seven churches in Asia, to be exact. And to do so, as one Bible commentator points out, he's using these four elements that I've just mentioned. He's using commendation, complaint, correction, and consequence. Four elements that, in my opinion at least, look a lot like a performance review, an employee performance review. But now here's the thing. In the case of the second church, we're on num church number two now of the seven. In the case of the second church, the church at Smyrna, there's something very, very strange going on with this church. Something very, very good strange going on with this church. Wait for it. There is apparently nothing majorly wrong with this church, and a lot majorly right. I told you it was strange. And so in this review of the church of Smyrna, Jesus quite remarkably finds no complaint, or finds no fault. He makes no complaint. That's something. He finds no fault, makes no complaint. Hard to believe, especially if you consider what is actually going on in that church in Smyrna. So let's find out now the, the backstory of this church in Smyrna. 
and find out what Jesus has to say to, to them, the people of that church, and to us in this review. So Smyrna was a large and prosperous city in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. And apparently the, the city leaders in Smyrna, they were very proud of their municipality. And they had, they had coins minted with this saying on them, first in Asia, in beauty and size. No second city complex for Smyrna. Absolutely not. They thought they were the best. So Jesus, as usual, then opens up his review by identifying himself in very descriptive terms. We'll see throughout this series of sermons that Jesus will first introduce himself in terms that are very relevant to what he next is going to say to his audience. So in the words for today, uh, this is how he opens up. He says in verse 8, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That's verse 8. Now, these words might seem pretty standard, right? Nothing unusual, uh, almost formulaic way that Jesus is introducing himself. We see something very similar in Revelation 1, in fact. We've all probably heard something like this before. But actually, as we're going to talk about later, we're going to talk about later, this description is hugely, hugely relevant specifically to the church at Smyrna. These are not just throwaway words. These are directed, his introduction is directed at that church in particular. Specifically targeted at them. But as I said, we're actually going to deal with that later at the end of the sermon. So you're going to have to wait for that. Let's jump ahead now to Jesus' commendation to this church. And this we find in verse 9. This is the good stuff. This is what Jesus says. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, not easy to understand this. Let me give it some context, okay? Again, this is context just for this church at that time, not universally so. All right. According to Bible commentators, if they look at the historical records, if they look at some of the other texts in, in the Bible, there are lots of Jewish people. There's a diaspora, and there's lots of Jewish people living in Smyrna at that time in the first century. Uh, and some of these Jewish people who are living there, some of them belong to the Jewish synagogue, uh, and some of them belong to the Christian church there. That is, there are some who are who are, are still have retained their uh, traditional Jewish. Um, practices and beliefs, and others who have uh, embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. So according to Bible commentators, the Jewish people in, in Smyrna, the ones who are part of traditional Judaism, they are viewing the Jewish people who have become Christians as a bit of a threat, a bit of a threat. This because these Jewish Christians are rejecting many of the beliefs and practices that have defined historic Judaism uh, for hundreds, thousands of years. Things like keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher, uh, circumcision. And if rejecting these things weren't bad enough, the Jewish Christians are also worshiping a new God, you might say, another God, you might say. They're worshiping the self-proclaimed Messiah called Yeshua, Jesus. They're calling him Lord and obeying his commands. For this reason, then, you can imagine, you can imagine that, for these, that these Jewish Christians were perceived as a bit of a threat 
to what traditional Judaism stood for. And so it's thought that in response to this perceived threat, the Jewish people were part of the synagogue, the ones still adhering to traditional Judaism. It's thought that they were actively trying to get the Jewish Christians in trouble with the local Roman authorities there in Smyrna. And as we read in the text, apparently they were slandering them, saying bad things about them in order to, to suppress them. Now let me say this before we go further. Before we take it upon ourselves to judge these Jewish people who still belong to the synagogue, let's imagine that if a group of Christian believers broke off from the Christian church, and let's say they added a fourth member of the Trinity. Now I know you can't have a fourth member of the Trinity. Mathematically it's impossible, I think. Um, and let's say in addition to adding a fourth person to the Trinity, they taught as well that, that Christians should no longer baptize. Christians should no longer celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion. How would such a development in the faith we so dearly hold go down with us? Well, in any case, it seems that these Jewish people who were part of the synagogue, they reacted in this way. They might have tried to cause trouble then for these Jewish Christians by telling the Roman authorities that these Jewish Christians were pledging allegiance not to Caesar, but to Jesus. They were saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And this would surely have attracted the attention of the Roman authorities at that time. That's treason, after all, swearing allegiance to any other Lord other than Caesar himself. Well, whatever's happening in the church at Smyrna is evidently experiencing some sort of persecution. Persecution that may have well taken the form of economic discrimination or perhaps even physical incarceration. And as a result, the church in Smyrna is a poor church, a harassed church, a suffering church. But they are also a church that Christ holds in high regard. For they have stayed true to the gospel and to Christ himself, despite all the hardships they have faced. They have persevered in their faith, persecution notwithstanding. And for this, they're commended, called rich, in fact, because even though they don't have any money, they have so much else. And this so much else is something we'll hear about in a little bit. Okay, so that's the commendation, the good stuff. Let me just make one more note before we move on. Uh, to the next section of the review. Some of you may have noticed some very challenging words from Jesus in that text there. You might be wondering why Jesus, when he, when he speaks to the church at Smyrna, Jesus, who is Jewish himself, in verse 9, he identifies some of his fellow Jews, presumably the ones who are making trouble for the church at Smyrna, as people who say they are Jews, but really aren't. That's what it says in the text there. So how do we deal with that? That's pretty harsh stuff, right? Challenging words. Well, it's too big of a topic to do justice to in this sermon. But let me just say this. Help us at least understand it. For Jesus, when he's saying these words, Jewishness has to do with being one of God's chosen, receiving his covenant blessings. And for Jesus, 
This is to be found only through belief in the Messiah, he himself. Jewishness here, then, what Jesus is speaking about, is not an ethnic distinction. It's a spiritual distinction. And so for this reason, Jesus is saying that his fellow Jews who have rejected him are not truly Jewish because they have not embraced him as the Messiah. I think that's important that we understand why those words are in there. Okay, let's move on now to the complaint section of the review. Well, actually, there is no complaint section of the review. In most of those other reviews of the six churches we're going to look at, we see that after the commendation, there is a complaint leveled by Jesus against the church. He challenges them. He's very hard with them sometimes, extremely critical of them sometimes. But here, very exceptionally, with the church at Smyrna, there's no complaint. Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church in this review. We can infer then that in the midst of their suffering that this church is doing what they should be doing. They're being a faithful church. They're being a fruitful church. A church in line with Jesus' will for it. For this reason then, what you would expect to come next in the review process is a correction, but obviously that's not going to be in there because there's nothing to correct, at least not majorly so. Surely there are issues, but not that arise to the attention of Jesus in this writing. So there's no need of correction in this review. So then Jesus gives next, not a correction, but a continuation, a continuation. He basically tells the folks there in Samaria to continue to do what they were doing before. And this is what he says, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, two things I think we need to uh, know and understand about this statement of Jesus. First, we as English speakers, we as English speakers might interpret that statement, do not be afraid, as a command to stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. But the Greek grammar behind the English text here suggests otherwise. The grammar suggests something more along the lines of continue to not be afraid. Continue to not be afraid rather than stop being afraid. The grammar suggests in the original Greek text that the church in Smyrna now is living without fear and that Jesus wants, just, wants them to just continue to do so. And so we can understand Jesus' words here it's words of encouragement, not of correction. They're simply being encouraged to continue to do what they've been doing before, not fearing the persecution that is most certainly going to come. Okay, so that's in the first case. Now the second. Secondly, is the fact that Jesus mentions quite explicitly how long this persecution is going to take place, right? Some of you have noted in the text you, when we read, it's going to be 10 days, Jesus says, 10 days of persecution. So what's up with that? What's up with 10 days? Well, most commentators I read on the subject tend to think, most commentators tend to think that this mention of 10 days is not a literal 10-day persecution that they will endure. 
but rather a persecution that will last a short amount of time. Ten days symbolizes a defined and relatively brief period of persecution. It's not a prediction of the exact length of the persecution. All right? So, just to recap that section, the continuation section, continue not to fear, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna. And now in closing, he gives them two consequences. Two consequences for their perseverance. And not surprisingly, they're both positive consequences. I mean, we usually think of consequences as negative. Here in these texts, well, consequences can be positive too. Good things can happen as a result of a church's uh, actions. So here's the first positive consequence, last part of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So it looks like things might get bad, really bad for that church in Smyrna. Death is mentioned here after all. But if they remain faithful, if they remain faithful, even if they end up dying, they will live. They will live eternally with Christ. They will, as Jesus says, receive eternal life as their victor's crown. So that's the first, the first positive consequence for faithful perseverance in this time of persecution. That's eternal life. And the second positive consequence is very similar. This is how Jesus finishes his review at the church of the church at Smyrna. This is verse 11. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So this consequence is very much like the first, except it is framed negatively rather than positively. So what do I mean by that? The first consequence, in the first consequence, the church is told what they will get from their perseverance. And in the second consequence, the church is told what they won't get on account of their perseverance. The first death is the destruction of the mortal body. You see those words in the text, right? And that is the second consequence, that they will not be subjected to this second death, which is the death of the soul, the death of the soul in hell. So that, Christ is saying, you're not going to get if you persevere. You'll, you'll be exempt from that. You'll be, you'll be able to avoid the second death. And they will, they will overcome that and receive, as we saw earlier, the first consequence, the victor's crown. Okay, so that's the second consequence then. They'll avoid eternal death. That's the review. That's the review. Jesus' performance review of this first century church at Smyrna. What now is in this review for a 21st century church, let's say like ours, or like any 21st century church? Well, perhaps this, especially for, for our church here, I think. As I hear people in the West discuss the future of the Christian church um, on their continent, um, in their countries. So oftentimes when people are discussing the church in the West, uh, oftentimes when I, when I listen to these discussions, I hear a lot of apprehension. I hear a lot of concern. And sometimes I even, I even hear fear with regard to society's attitudes toward and treatment of the Christian church. 
and of Christians. Given what they perceive, given what they perceive is already happening in society, given what they perceive is already happening in their governments, given what they perceive is already happening in their workplaces, given what they already perceive is happening in their universities, people wonder. People wonder. People fear. But people wonder if they or their children or their grandchildren might be subjected to discrimination, to harassment, to even persecution for being followers of Jesus Christ. People worry that it's not going to be so easy in the future for them and for all who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. So to be honest, I don't know that if this is talked a lot about in Switzerland. This is my own, only my third week here. But I know elsewhere in Europe, and certainly in America, this is discussed quite often. It's an issue in enough places in the Western world that I felt it worth mentioning this morning in conjunction with this review of the church. Smyrna. So I guess what I would say is this. For those of us who do have such apprehensions, such concerns, such fears, what I would say to you is the words with which Jesus introduces himself to the church at Smyrna before giving them their review. This is what Jesus said to that church. You can find it in verse 8. Jesus said, These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. This again is how Jesus described himself before he goes on to tell these believers that they don't have to be afraid about the suffering that awaits them. And this description that, that Jesus gives him of himself here as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again, this couldn't be a more relevant description for those believers who anticipate trouble ahead. Whatever form that trouble takes, not just persecution. Uh, this could be health troubles. This could be family troubles. This could be marriage troubles, job troubles, school troubles, friend troubles, financial troubles. This trouble could be uh, about unemployment, underemployment, conflict with kids, conflict with parents, conflict with siblings. Uh, this trouble could be about less than desired exam scores, less than desired employment opportunities, breakups, divorce, sickness, disease, even death. I think what Jesus says here is relevant to all kinds of trouble, not just the trouble of persecution. I am the first and the last, Jesus says. With these words, Jesus here is establishing his absolute sovereignty over heaven and earth, over time and eternity. This is a declaration that he has all, always existed and will always exist, and that nothing in this universe is outside of his control. He is Lord of the past. He is Lord of the present. He is Lord of the future. He is Lord of all. And he is Lord of us. He is the end all and be all. The A to Z. The first and the last. All that was, is, or ever will be. And since we as believers belong to him, we ultimately have nothing to fear. To be sure, we might still experience discrimination, marginalization, ostracization. We might still be hassled, harassed, harangued, 
We might still be detained or tried or incarcerated, as is happening already in many places in the world, right? But it will not be without his permissive will that such things happen. He will still be Lord in the end, and he will still ensure outcomes for us that are consistent with his promises to us. Let me just say that again. He will still ensure outcomes for us that are consistent with his promises to us. Namely, he will ensure that nothing will separate us from his love, even death itself. But that's not all Jesus offers these believers who anticipate trouble ahead. It's not all he offers us when we anticipate trouble ahead, for whatever reason. In this description, Jesus always also refers to himself as the one who died and came to life again. And this is a clear reference to his bodily resurrection, a resurrection that all believers will share with him. Just as he was raised from the dead, so we will be raised from the dead. And so again, ultimately, we have nothing to fear. Those who die in Christ will live with Christ forever. They'll live with him forever in his kingdom of peace and joy. Again, he will ensure outcomes for us that are consistent with his promises to us. I don't know how these words of Jesus were received by those believers in Smyrna. But I hope today they're received by us as words of both challenge and hope. Challenge that they challenge us to remain faithful to our Lord despite whatever circumstances we find ourselves in and whatever society we're in. But I hope they'll, they'll also comfort us too and give us hope. Comfort us with the assurance of Christ's sovereignty over the universe now and his promise of eternal life later. And so may God give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, once again this week, you have given us challenging words, tough words, words not easy to swallow. Lord, we just pray that you give us faith, hope, and love. Give us faith, hope, and love as we seek to be your people on this earth, both in easy times and in difficult times. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.